0: He 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 was salt. He you know he was enough of a shit poster to catch an ice pick, right? Yeah, like <laughs> shit. Yeah, damn. <laughs> You've ever clowned on your enemy so hard that they sent spies to assassinate you? Oh my god, dude! You're passing the spine check. See, this is. I feel.
1: Oh, yeah. What the hell, man? Are you out here just <laughs> smashing this shit? The, well, I was getting really annoyed because I, you know, in these cases specifically, I like to highlight and write in the book or whatever. Yeah. But there are times where I don't have my highlighter or my pen right next to me, and I want to set the book down, and then this is fucking happening every time. So I started just cracking it. I was just like, just oh, fuck it, God. man. I don't give a shit. Yeah. So, um, I usually don't do that. I like, I don't
0: think about it, but my spines are always fine, and like, that's the joke on Twitter, anytime someone posts a bookshelf, they're like, mm, spine check, you didn't, <laughs> you didn't actually read the fucking book, Yeah, Ugh. like, it's I've seen this many times now, but someone will post their bookshelf and it's someone they'll zoom in on like the three copies of Capital and it's like copy one maybe has some lines on it. Two and three untouched. you know, It's (laughs) like completely clean. This was spine checked by a real Marxist. (laughs) 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 Hello, welcome. Hey, welcome back. My name is Will. My name is Aaron. And this is Left Unread, a podcast where two dudes engage
1: in a radical self-education. That's right. And this episode, we just finished reading The Permanent Revolution by Leon Trotsky. Yes, The Permanent Revolution. We're reading the well-read edition here. The Permanent Revolution and Results and Prospects. Yes. Yeah. So, first, as is the motif for the show, let's talk a little bit about who is this Leon Trotsky guy. I came into this with few preconceived notions of who he was. I came into this with a lot of preconceived notions of who he was. (laughs) Yeah, I think that that's a more common experience for a lot of left-leaning people, at least. Yeah, to hear a lot of people talk shit about Trotsky. So, yeah,
0: I had a friend talk shit about Trotsky when I mentioned this. It's odd to see the internet sphere, the Twitter sphere, I guess, dunk on people that lived a hundred years ago. It's <laughs> it's very funny that like I had jokes about Karl Radek already in my head, because who the fuck is that? Yeah.
1: Leon Davidovich Trotsky, born Lev Davidovich-Bronstein, was a Bolshevik Revolutionary, Marxist theorist, chief architect of the 1917 Russian Revolution, and owner of the most glorious head of hair my eyes have ever seen. After the October Revolution of 1917, Trotsky became the founder of the Workers' and Peasants' Red Army, as well as served as the People's Commissar for Foreign Affairs and the People's Commissar of War, along with Daddy Lenin. Though generally regarded as Lenin's choice as his successor, following Lenin's death, a power struggle with Joseph Stalin ensued and Trotsky was expelled from the Communist Party and deported from the Soviet Union under Stalin's regime. Trotsky's contributions to the revolution were diminished or removed wholesale. And in 1940, Trotsky was assassinated by a suspected accomplice of Joseph Stalin via ice pick to, to the, the ice head.
0: Pick, yes. Yes, that's the joke. That's the joke. We read The Permanent Revolution. It was... Written in response to a Stalinist takedown of Trotsky and Trotskyism as a whole by Karl Radek while in Turkish exile in 1930, Leon Trotsky used this book to defend, elaborate, and elucidate the theory of the permanent revolution as opposed to the current train of Soviet thought, socialism, in one country. Drawing heavily from his own work and experience on the 1905 revolution and his subsequent writing on it, Trotsky calls for a perpetual motion and focus on the world revolution as he, perhaps expertly, dissects critiques from former friends, his own former perspectives, and the man of steel, Stalin himself. Are most of the people I'm following Stalinists? Is a very odd question that I have to reckon with. Like, I don't know how, but the Chapo adjacent Twitter sphere mm-hmm. is more and more stocked with either like Maoist third worldist people who are like really into the international thing, which totally fine, and Stalinists, people that are doing Stalin apologia, which is
1: a wild, wild thing. Yeah, when I was on the Marxist Paul Discord, somebody brought up Stalin once, and, and I a response was like, you'll find that almost everyone here is at the least sympathetic to Stalin. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've even found myself in that position just thinking about what
0: Stalin was doing in the historical context. I don't know much outside of like, what happened during World War II, mm-hmm. but once you, once you know the, the bigger picture about where the, the USSR was in its own development a, in, like, 1939, I think that, like, to hear... A lot of times people will be like, oh, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was Hitler allying with Stalin, like, they were buddy-buddy with the Nazis, mm-hmm. but it was a non-aggression pact. Like, it was just a don't invade us, bro, mm-hmm. type deal. That, that, that's too... Flattening of a way of putting it, but I don't know. Like I've seen, uh, I've seen a lot of argument on that point alone, and it's like, man, y'all are really, really willing to die on this hill,
1: mm. you know, in both directions. I'm sure we will get some Stalin eventually, and we can have that conversation yeah. when we get to it.
0: I am. I'm not going to lie. I would not mind moving
1: away from Russia for a second. Yeah, uh, I'm feeling a
0: little rushed
1: out. <laughs> well, I it, I put in the outline a question here that I think is coming up in my mind, at least in part, because so much of what we're reading is focused on the Russian Revolution. Mm -hmm. But like, how applicable are all of these revolutionary theories to non-agrarian spaces or places that aren't Russia? I mean, Trotsky obviously talks about that directly in this book a little bit, but I think it's a fair question to ask, especially given the context that we've created for the show at this point, which is Lenin. (laughs) Yeah, Engels, lenin and now trotsky were we're very russia centric here
0: yeah i mean i guess if we're talking about like the timeline of communist history russia does inhabit a significant portion of that Mm -hmm. it's hard to avoid is the main thing especially because later in the years those revolutions were still at at least at some part based off of what happened in russia one thing that was really interesting here even though for the average reader
1: probably not is all of the aside about china you know i have a thing here about china because again i know next to nothing about china and mao and it's interesting to see trotsky from the outside looking at the russian position on china and commenting on it and trying to separate that from trotsky's obvious distaste for anything that stalin does or says right and try to figure out what was going on (laughs) i don't know anything about it yeah It's definitely an
0: interesting point. I also know little about it, but enough about the general history and the time that it was interesting to hear Trotsky talk directly about um, what the USSR's position was in China. Because just to give you some historical context, later on in the 30s and 40s, ultimately until the CCP, I mean, I guess the the People's Republic of China happens, is that Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists did turn on the communists. I mean, that's the reason that the long march happened uh, is because the nationalists basically said enough of this Mm -hmm. communism shit, (laughs) you know? And so it's really interesting to hear Trotsky talk directly about the fact that the position and the slogan of the program of the USSR and Stalin and his lackeys is antithetical to what he thinks should be happening. I mean, he's saying it's leading to the downfall, you know, Mm. it's like floundering about. I mean, that is one thing I do appreciate. And it also kind of recentered Trotsky in my mind. I mean, one thing that people don't think about is that he was part of the Russian Revolution. I mean, people talk about him that he built the Red Army, you know, mm-hmm. like he was a critical part of that. It's not like he was just one of the guys in the sidelines, he was like the a founder. leader. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He fucking started the Red Army.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I think it's a little odd that as soon as he's put into exile, it's like this is some crank. You know, he's still clearly a very historically literate person. He's still clearly somebody who is thinking about what it means to create a worker's society. And the view I had when I came in was like, oh,
1: he's this wild-haired loon, you know. Mm-hmm. Man, that hair. Yeah. So fucking beautiful. glorious. Something that I did find kind of refreshing, again, knowing that this was written later, what, in 1928? I think like it was in 1930. Okay, so... After his participation in 1905, after his participation in 1917, and then after his exile, he's writing all of this in hindsight. And it was kind of refreshing to see someone participating in self-crit in a meaningful way, where he actually says a couple of times, like, Lenin was right to call me out on this thing that I said back in 1905, as opposed to Stalin's attitude of revisionism and everything I've ever done is right and the perfect thing. I don't know it was refreshing to me. The image that Trotsky creates of Stalin here is pretty hilarious. It's it's just like he's
0: a lumbering oaf. Like I like I, ape-brained. Like I cannot yeah. he dunks on him a couple of times. He dunks on him a lot. Yeah. Although he only uh, I think he only quotes Stalin's theory like once or twice. Like to refute it, I suppose. I know
1: there's one space. I I caught yeah. one spot, yeah. Yeah.
0: He talks about I didn't take many notes on these, like, I didn't pull many quotes, but the way that he dunks on some of these people is really hilarious. Like, I mentioned earlier how he talks about reading Zenoviev's Zinoviev- Lenin, like, work on Lenin is, like, eating rough cotton, like, chewing rough cotton. It's, I don't know, it's interesting, but I was going to say, I was going to mention that earlier when we were talking about, like, the figures of the revolution. It's interesting... The way that some of these people have risen to the top, I suppose, when there were so many active participants in mm-hmm. in the Russian Revolution, you know? Like, I mean, there's dozens of names in this book that, without any context, just are like faces in the crowd. Like, it's a ton of people, and even if you familiarize yourself with their names because you've seen them a hundred times in these other books, mm-hmm. like, I'm not reading Zinoviev. We're not reading anything by Kamenev or... Yeah. Carl Radek, you know, who apparently wrote a ton, he was part of the left opposition as well. Yeah, before he was reformed, you know,
1: yeah, where he fell into the trap of Stalinism.
0: Sorry to be all over the place, but just to talk again about Trotsky doing self-crit. Mm-hmm. Um, at first, I was take I was kind of caught off guard when he was referring to himself in the third person. I was like, man, this is a dweeb. Like, this I is fucking hated that. I, I was like Trotsky, <laughs> no bitches, no Riz, no nothing. Like, th- he's a loser. But I quickly realized that he's saying, when he's talking about himself in the third person, he's talking about a different Trotsky. He's either talking about the Trotsky of 1905 or like the Trotsky that's in these oppositional minds. It's mm-hmm. like this isn't what I am actually saying. It's is like conception. Yeah, it's like quote unquote action, Trotsky. Trotsky. Yeah. yeah.
1: And that's interesting. I hadn't really put that together. that's kind of because I remember I was telling Chris, I was like,, hey, this guy's a fucking dork. You yeah, know? It's like this guy just fucking referred to himself he's as jacking third himself
0: person. off, yeah. okay. But then I but then I was like, no, he's 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 separating that Trotsky from his own ideas, interesting, which I'm not sure is the correct interpretation. Maybe he is just like, a, oh. but <laughs> At least by sitting myself in that perspective, I was able to move past the fact that he, he refers to himself in the third person continuously throughout this book. If you haven't read it, be warned.
1: Given that this writing is called The Permanent Revolution, I expected it to start with, a definition of the permanent revolution, or some, as you said, elucidation on its merits. Yes. And of the 10 chapters, it takes him nine chapters of talking about other stuff before he finally just kind of comes to the straight theory. So I think it makes sense for us to talk about First, like, what is the permanent revolution?
0: Yeah. Although I will say, just had this thought now that he was writing and editing this in exile, like, I'm not saying he was in solitary or anything, but I'm just imagining being on an island, which is where he was, being essentially enclosed by people guarding him from outside forces, and he's set to write this own book. Like, no wonder it's so self-circular. I don't know. Like, it's... it's. If you read it, I'm sure for the first couple chapters, you'll
1: be like, man, I'm done with this, you know? Yeah, I will freely admit that the first three chapters, I was just like, I don't know that I want to keep going with this. There's barely anything in those first 40 pages, 50 pages that I thought was that had any merit whatsoever. I felt it was very much just Trotsky saying like, everyone that hates me is a loser and is wrong. Lenin is my best friend and this is why. And everyone is wrong for exiling me from Russia. And as true as any of that might actually be, it was not a compelling reading experience.
0: No, I I do. He needs an editor. Like, he needs someone <laughs> to tell him, be like, no, you should put this, like, because cause in chapter 10, he, he does, like. It's perfectly
1: outlined. Yeah. That's what I needed first, Yeah, you know. That's what I, my note says, why the end, though? Because <laughs> it's the beginning of chapter 10. He says, I hope that the reader will not object if. To end this book I attempt without fear of repetition to formulate succinctly my principal conclusions bitch why wait till the end to put the thesis of the thing
0: yeah well yeah it's cuz he knows maybe that if if you just read the 10 points or whatever then there's no point to deal with all of this other shit where yeah. where trotsky's pleading his case like if i'm yeah. here for the meat and potatoes i don't need all this other stuff which is exactly the train of thought I had going into this. Mm. you know. But it does open up. It does open up. I mean, so let's get right into it. What is the permanent revolution? Yeah. I liked this quote on page 35. This one was interesting to me because the task is not to attain the abstract maximum tempo, but the optimum tempo, the best which follows both internal and world economic conditions, strengthening the position of the proletariat. What I think is interesting about it is that If you look at the Soviet Union, like the growth of the Soviet Union in between the 1917 revolution and I guess World War II, that was Stalin's plan was rapid, rapid, rapid industrialization, like Mm -hmm. juice this thing up to the maximum. That way we can do socialism like they I don't necessarily think they were looking for like self-sustainability, but they were looking to build a system in that country without the because we talked about this forever ago. but the idea that lenin and a lot of bolsheviks originally had is that their revolution would spur other revolutions in the world mm-hmm. and as that became clear that that wasn't going to happen the the goalpost kind of shifted right the germans were still quickly approaching and they signed that treaty. They signed a treaty with the, the central powers essentially to stop that encroach. Mm-hmm. So rather than relying on these other revolutions, they kind of had to shift their perspective and say, we have to build socialism in this country, which is where the idea of socialism in one country comes from.
1: Yeah. You're bringing up Lenin. Trotsky does a lot of looking at things that Lenin had to say about the requirement of mm-hmm. the permanent revolution or these revolutions happening elsewhere around Europe in order to support or bolster what was happening in the USSR. And I think that on page 149, he quotes Lenin directly a couple of times. Near the top of the page, he says, In the epoch of the first revolution, Lenin repeated tirelessly that we should not retain democracy, not even democracy, without the socialist revolution in Europe, and then quotes him further, near the bottom of the page, 149, where he says, International imperialism could not, under any circumstances, on any condition, live side by side with the Soviet Republic. In this sphere, conflict is inevitable. Mm -hmm. And here lies the greatest difficulty of the Russian Revolution, the necessity of calling forth an international revolution. So Trotsky, in his support of the permanent revolution, does a lot of this same sort of thing where he's suggesting that revolutions cannot take place in isolation and be self-sustaining that it is a requirement that those revolutions occur elsewhere and until he says until the entire planet is eventually socialist yeah yeah
0: yeah we'll talk about this later when we talk about marxism and pacifism i'm sure but i mean he does talk about the end of war is in like this ultimate goal where you know the world has now undergone this revolution the thing that i have trouble with is that not to get bogged down in the political forms, but, mm-hmm. you know, what does that look like? Is Are we talking about dozens of people's republics, or are we talking about, like, a federation? That's where things get a little bit tricky, mm-hmm. you know? Is the idea to spur revolutions in all these different places... I mean, ultimately, it comes down to the two questions that Trotsky puts forth here, the national question and the agrarian question. Yeah. But I don't necessarily understand what it looked like. And also the, the scope of time that Trotsky talks about here is not clear. Like, He does that deliberately. He's saying, like, we have no idea how long it would take. You know, some stages might take a forever, you know, one country might have been in the proletarian dictatorship for a long time, even before it's ripe for socialist construction. So the idea of the permanent revolution being one where there's this ongoing process, I don't know. It's difficult because I don't think that it's proper to talk about the development of a country in, like, evolutionary stages you know i don't think that and this might be what trotsky's getting at but i think that to look at it as in like they're in the bourgeois democratic stage and now it's ripe for mm-hmm. this kind of revolution is silly in its own right you know you i don't know why they're
1: so keen on looking for a formula he even likens lenin's original or early kind of revolutionary rhetoric as like an algebra yeah. And says that it's like an algebraic formula. And Lenin ultimately had to pivot when things weren't exactly like he had intended.
0: Right? Yeah, that's part of what he's saying, is that the Stalinists are still trying to follow this formula, even though the need for it is, has progressed. Or, or maybe, like, dialectically, it has evolved, mm-hmm. you know? But he's talking about the revolution as like a continuous process. On page 120... In another episode, I expressed my discomfort with the idea of the party line. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, how can you have one general line of what is right? And I think Trotsky does some interesting thinking on this here. He says at the bottom of the page, but the real development of ideas knew also before the emergence of the general line, the method of successive approximations to the truth. So he's talking about the fact that Why is there a party line that has to be followed in that sense? Because there's a chance that what might be true one day is suddenly not true the next day. And the idea of this like scientific process is like making observations and theories that are close to the truth and then hammering it out. You know, he even says further down, the whole point is to understand in time that a miss is a miss and then to introduce necessary corrections without delay. And that's like, that's like part of the whole Marxist model is this kind of self-criticism, this kind of development of oneself and one's ideas. Through, I guess, praxis.
1: Yeah, I had those exact lines marked. And he does even say directly on that page, this, of course, does not prevent what is absolutely correct today from being declared absolutely false tomorrow. Yeah, And I think you have to have a level, there are so many variables and so many things, so many pieces on the board Mm -hmm. that you have to have a level of willingness to pivot and reassess and make those sorts of judgment calls in the moment, like he says, recognize when a miss is a miss and then move on as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah. He talks a lot about specific conditions, you know, specific conditions and places. He talks a lot about China here, but I mean, that's something that's just true overall. One issue I had is that local conditions are something that's really important. Uh, An algebra is not going to do it because there are many different things happening in different places. And I was thinking about where we stand today compared to what Trotsky is talking about here. Like Mm -hmm. if we were going to look at what Trotsky is saying as a blueprint for our own revolution, heavy air quotes, what is the peasantry in a modern day? Like that's a huge question. And in the beginning, I was like, this is worthless because there is not a peasant class in the same yeah. sense in our modern society. Later on, I kind of had to reevaluate that because he does talk about the petty bourgeois, which I think is a lot more ap- applicable to today. But it's hard to conceptualize what he's talking about when he's talking about the proletariat and the peasantry. Because mm-hmm. I think in the modern age, they're one and the same. You know, there isn't a peasantry in the same sense.
1: I had that exact same train of thought as we were going through, and he he obviously devotes a large section of this text to talking about the peasantry, and he even, from the vantage point of the time that he was writing this, talks about looking back on the 1905 revolution specifically, and how the judgment calls that he was making at that time were indicative of his vantage at that point, yeah. but looking back at it now has given him a different view yeah, and kind of would change his perspective a little bit in the same way that here we are halfway across the world, a hundred years later, obviously like it's not going to be a one-to-one analogy. Right. We need to think a little differently about it. Yeah. And
0: just to give Trotsky some favor here, I think that there is something still applicable about maybe an urban vanguard leading a more rural peasantry i don't like i don't like the word peasantry applied to anything in our modern sense because i mean i was i was trying to hash that out with chris i was like what would be the modern peasantry you know Mm -hmm. it's not farmers for one they're not a majority anymore maybe if we're thinking about a modern connection to what would be serfs then what are those immigrants like i don't know yeah i don't either yeah it's hard it's hard to talk
1: about like what that connection would be today so that's just difficult here Something you said a few moments ago brought my attention to this quote. I still think we haven't effectively defined the permanent revolution. Maybe we should do that really quickly. Mm. I think for me on page 101 was the first time I felt like he gives a working definition of what the permanent revolution is. It's at the very bottom of page 101 where he says the bourgeois revolution of 1905 would pass directly over into a socialist revolution constituting the first in a series of national revolutions. So it's a permanent revolution in the sense that it, one, is not a single instance inside of a state or a country where yeah. a revolution occurs and then that's the end. It's that there one revolution begets another revolution begets another revolution. So it's permanent in that sense. Yep. And it's permanent also globally in that it inspires and/or creates further revolutions elsewhere that then create a larger kind of proletarian class.
0: Yeah, in a sense, I can actually, I can definitely see where Trotsky's coming from in the global sense because he's like: if one country were to be like the shining beacon, I guess, oh, you know, this class of people have liberated themselves, they're creating a society that is clearly better. Yeah. Then the people on looking would probably try to go for the same thing. Like,
1: that looks like a pretty fucking sweet yeah, deal. Yeah,
0: it's like, oh, that proletariat are doing it, so can we, Yeah, you know? I think that, you know, that overlooks a lot of hegemonic forces, and sure. especially in today, even the way our own, our own proletariat is such a weird thing to say, but like the proletariat in the U.S., I don't think any of them have any class consciousness.
1: First of all, Trotsky uses a term that I know from philosophy quite frequently mm-hmm. called a priori. Have you ever heard of that before? I've heard it, but I'm not exactly, like, what it, what, is, what would it mean in this context? Okay, so, I mean, in philosophy, a priori means derived from reason alone. So it's, it's something that you can conceptualize through reason. Very well-known philosopher named Immanuel Kant uses a lot of a priori reasoning. But anyway, on page 148, Trotsky writes, the dictatorship can maintain itself, talking about the dictatorship of the proletariat, the dictatorship can maintain itself and develop socialism only if, the Western European proletariat comes opportunely to its assistance naturally, this opportuneness cannot be calculated a priori. It is determined in the course of development and struggle. to talk about permanent revolution in one country, I
0: like the way that he says that a democratic revolution will lead to socialist problems mm-hmm. right It's like on construction of these ideas that might happen in like a liberal revolution or in a bourgeois revolution there the people in power are fundamentally confronted with tasks that can only be answered by socialist construction that's when the permanence of the revolution really kind of clicked with me i was getting confused when they're talking about leaping over stages and the democratic dictatorship versus uh you know the dictatorship of the proletariat
1: he's talking about radical this is more about the question of the role of the peasantry Mm -hmm. but on page 85 He says, Radek had abstracted himself so violently from political institutions that he has forgotten the most fundamental thing in a revolution, namely, who leads it and who seizes power.
0: Yeah, there is a big idea here about... uh, There's a lot of word mincing. Were they talking about the dictatorship of the proletariat and the peasantry versus Mm -hmm. the dictatorship of the proletariat leading the peasantry, peasantry, yes. Where Trotsky's saying that those two things are really one and the same. Yeah. A quote that I appreciated is when he says that on page 78... Okay. Isn't it obvious that this idea expressly precises the dictatorship of the proletariat and peasantry? The formula of proletariat supported by the peasantry remains entirely within the bounds of that very same dictatorship. So he's saying that even if you're thinking of the dictatorship of the proletariat and peasantry, that can still be the configuration of the proletariat led by the peasantry. Yeah. And I like what you said, the, the quote against Radik there, where he's saying that like ultimately these revolutions are led by political institutions. I was getting frustrated with Trotsky at one point because he kept talking about slogans. Like What slogan are you putting out there that has to be followed? But I guess ultimately, if you're talking about leading a mass party, then those kinds of things are important because they're what will be acted upon by the
1: masses. Yeah, I suppose it also has something to contribute to the party line. I mean, yeah. uh, Trotsky certainly doesn't talk about it in that way, I don't think, but the no czar slogan kind of thing. Or no whatever.
0: czar but a worker's government, when they actually mean a worker's government but no czar, or yeah. a worker, a czar but no worker's government, it's like, I don't care. This yeah. is not making me
1: interested in this argument. Yeah, but I think in the modern day, we understand how effective a, a slogan can be to yeah. like rally a group of people behind an idea, even if they don't have the same level of class consciousness across them. Sure. You know?
0: Okay, sorry, we got all over the place there, but we're still talking are we st- we're talking about the permanent revolution. Yeah. It is hard to define. I think that that's a crux of this book until you get to the very end is that it's hard to understand what he's talking about by the permanent revolution. I think that the most sticking point of it
1: is the internationalist part of it. Again, I'm an idiot about history and even worse about European history. Russian history. Like, I don't have any access to any of that sort of stuff, right? But the way Trotsky presents Lenin's position on this, on the October Revolution and after, was that Lenin, like Trotsky, again, this is all coming according to Trotsky, but Lenin, like Trotsky, had hoped that the October Revolution would spurn other revolutions in Europe, and suggests through random quotes from Lenin, perhaps cherry-picked, I don't know, that Lenin very much was hopeful and kind of almost thought that any success of the Russian revolution was dependent upon other revolutions occurring in Europe. And so I get why that would be so important and why that would feel so monumental. Like If we were able to successfully have a revolution in a country and then see that spurn another revolution in another country, the momentum that would be built from that would be so powerful yeah and i get why not seeing it happen would feel devastating and then you feel like you got to pivot
0: yeah i was just about to say can you imagine having that kind of revolutionary zeal and then nothing happens like your I country can very your much country imagine that. <laughs> oh god. god yeah your country is the only one that makes it you know to talk a little bit more about that i think that the difference between the trotsky position and the position of stalin is an interesting one there because he's talking about that permanent international revolution where as stalin was the stalinist idea i guess i should say was more that like certain countries were ripe for revolution yeah to me that that actually tracked a bit with history because there are historical examples of stalin's line being like don't do revolution you guys aren't ready yet mm-hmm. you know and we're not here to argue about whether that's true like the prematureness of a revolution but I don't know. When you look at the historical record, I mean, in China, as Trotsky is saying, you can see exactly what the Stalinist line led to. You know, Trotsky is saying that Stalin isn't based off of any theory. It's just it's just this arbitrary idea of like, oh, are you ripe for revolution? How do you know? You know, are you following the Russian model? That doesn't make any sense. Especially in China, we're talking about Chinese peasantry, Chinese politics, Chinese economics. All of these things are different in the sense, mm-hmm. and I think that. I don't know, if you were to square the historical record with what Trotsky is saying, you would find that he's on the right side of things. Again, I'm not saying that if they did a Chinese revolution in 1920, that that would succeed. In fact, when he talks about the Canton revolution, he calls it adventurism. You know, it's, there's, it's so odd. Like all of this hindsight labeling kind of bugs me because they're like, oh, you know, when they, when someone did the revolution in China, that was Ridiculous! I can't believe you did that adventuristic, opportunistic thing, mm-hmm. you know. But now you gotta do the revolution on the sa- on the same page. I can agree with Trotsky when he says that the Communist Party going with the Kuomintang in China is a poor idea because you can see exactly what happens there, right? They they get crushed. Although ultimately it leads to Mao mm-hmm. and Maoism, but. It's hard to, I don't, it's really tough, because I think that Trotsky is writing with the benefit of hindsight here, so it's hard to discern whether he's correct or not, even though I agree with him, and I think the historical record does, too.
1: Can I say that, again, coming from the perspective of a basically a complete layperson, and having all of the revolutionary zeal and none of the revolutionary knowledge, <laughs> I just feel stupid reading stuff like this where they're talking about why one country is ready for revolution and why one isn't and all of the kind of nitpicking that comes around with people suggesting that one is ready and one isn't even was it in state and revolution lenin talking about marx feeling like the movement in paris was happening too quickly but then yeah. once it did he once was it like, happened well, we must seize it yeah. like it's happening whether we want to or not so let's move with it what creates the conditions that make a revolution possible make a revolution viable and what doesn't i just don't understand any of those things and i wish that i understood better i don't even know if they really
0: understand that's the thing you know i think that they are acting pragmatically at the end of the day especially if you're talking about stalin's russia in the place of history but i agree with you i mean i have a very like don't get fooled man i have a very limited knowledge of history I have done not nearly any reading into the history of this stuff. I mean, a lot of this shit I know is just from like
1: YouTube videos, general outlines. And how much of it, how much of this sort of thing are you supposed to learn by reading and how much are you supposed to learn by doing? You know what I mean? Yeah. I I just, you can spend a lifetime reading about the history of other revolutions, their failures, you know, doing all of the good Marxist criticism of other past projects and then die of old age before anything ever came uh, came of fruition, you know?
0: I mean, that's the thing, too, is that you can only take so much from studying these old examples because they aren't applicable to your current conditions. Yeah, it's
1: anachronistic. It's yeah. decontextualized.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're never going to have a Russian revolution in America because there isn't like a serf peasantry that's here to rise up under the guidance of the urban proletariat. You know, I just don't think that would happen. And in fact, I think that if an urban proletariat rose up, there would be a reactionary swath from the rural legions, you know, on page 136. Gotcha. The petty bourgeoisie, including the peasantry, is incapable of playing the role of leader in modern, even if backwards, bourgeois society. In revolutionary, no less than reactionary epochs, the peasantry can either support the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie or serve as a prop to the dictatorship of the proletariat. It's one or the other. Like, the thing is, that's an interesting point that Trotsky stresses, is that the peasantry is incapable of independent leadership, which he says is based off of history, but who knows? I mean, I don't, I mean, yes, I would agree maybe that that's based off of history, but I don't necessarily think that it holds true just because it's held true in the past. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Because, for one, if we're, again, the peasantry, it means nothing in today's day. We're not talking about serfs. We're talking about different things. So I think that if we're talking about the peasantry as in, like, the petty bourgeois, I was just thinking, could they have an independent political leadership and i don't know if the answer is yes because they would just be they'd like vote blue no matter who yeah they would just fall into line with the bourgeois interestingly enough i wrote down the quote where they're talking about parvis some guy and he says that there's a model of australian democracy where he says that there's like an australian model for a democratic dictatorship but he says that The workers' party does indeed govern, but does not rule. It carries out its reformist demand only as a supplement to the program of the bourgeoisie. So it's that idea that, yeah, there might be a peasant's party in power, but are they really in power? You know, are they still beholden to this system of capitalist exploitation?
1: Yeah, it might it's somewhere, might be near there, where he even makes mention of something in American history that I wasn't particularly familiar with, the Farmer Labor Party, which I wasn't aware of. It's, I looked it up. It didn't last for long, and it kind of transformed into a smaller thing, but he refers to the shameful experiment with the Farmer Labor Party in the United States, and it seems to be a thing where, I don't remember if it was grain specifically, but some sort of commodity price was going down. And it was a, it was affecting farmers, and then because of that, labor wages were going down, and so the workers were also getting frustrated, and so they decided to bandy together to try to, you know, use their collective political influence. Yeah, and all they ended up doing was just trying some form of reformism. It yeah. was never a revolutionary movement in any way.
0: I think also that even revolutionary potential can get bogged down in that kind of reformism. Oh yeah, you know that happens a lot even in the day to day. You know, you have these revolutionary groups that ultimately boil down to doing, like, community action, because that's all that they can do. Not to give shit to anybody who's, like, giving out food or supplies to the homeless, but if that's the extent of your political participation, then what can I really say?
1: Yeah, it's not that those things are not useful or laudatory, it's just that they're not revolutionary. They're they're a means to an ends of surviving within the bourgeois kind of imperialist system.
0: This even kind of harkens back to when we were talking about the different political figures. I love this quote here. Lenin's thought must not be taken dogmatically, but historically, Lenin brought no finished commandments from Mount Sinai, but hammered out ideas and slogans to fit reality, making them concrete and precise in a different times filled with different content. It goes back to that continuous process. I mean, maybe the word permanent isn't the best word to use here because he's really just saying continuous.
1: Yeah, perpetual. Yeah. Yeah. uh,
0: You know, ongoing. Like, even... I think Revolution has too much of a snap finish to it. You know, like, just one event that happens. Yeah, you think of it as an event. yeah, Yeah. Like, the Revolution... When in reality, it could be a hundred year process, Mm -hmm. you know, of this slow change, especially if you're taking Trotsky's view on it, where he's saying that perhaps it starts as a democratic revolution, a bourgeois revolution, I should say, where there's a democratic dictatorship. As long as the proletariat is in the lead, though, actually creating the circumstance for the liberation of the working class then they will be confronted with problems that can only be solved with socialist construction. And regardless of how long that takes, the answering of those problems is what ultimately brings socialism to fruition. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is the most interesting part of the permanent revolution. It's, It's not the idea that we have to go from one step to the next step. It's like, boom, do a bourgeois revolution. Now there's a democratic process in power. We can start to create class consciousness. It's like, no, no, we should start with the end in mind. Right. Yeah. And
1: I I agree with that wholeheartedly, and I think that it harkens back to that kind of algebra that he was talking about before.
0: I love the idea of Lenin coming down from Mount Sinai. Like he's (laughs) because again, you know, even the first time when we were reading Stain Revolution, I was like, they view Lenin as this messianic figure. Yeah. You know, he is this theoretical god from on high. When especially as Trotsky's doing, because he he lived through the experience with the guy, he's saying, like, look at all of these different pieces of text like he goes into like the miscellaneous texts from lenin not that that was a huge quote or anything but i love that he's quoting from a collection of letters and Mm -hmm. things like that it's because the political reality of lenin and the russians at the time is that they were really not reacting but they were constructing a future based off of the present yeah yeah This was just a quote that I really appreciated as well.
1: They're talking about this in... The Novaya Zizn. Yeah. <laughs> How do you say that? It's called Our Life, the radical bourgeois newspaper. Our Life. Our Life. Yeah, okay. The quote, I'll just read it. It says, The complete
0: victory of the revolution signifies the victory of the proletariat, writes Comrade Trotsky. But this victory in turn implies the uninterruptedness of the revolution in the future. The proletariat realizes in life the fundamental democratic task and the very logic of its immediate struggle to consolidate its political rule poses before the proletariat, at a certain moment, purely socialist problems. Between the minimum and maximum program, a revolutionary continuity is established. It is not a question of a single blow or of a single day or month, but of a whole historical epoch. It would be absurd to fix its duration in
1: advance. I like the end part of that a lot.
0: Yeah. Again, it's somewhere between the minimum and maximum program. You know, it's like we're not going to do this maximum tempo. Like, we're not going to do this forced collectivization, massive industrialization kind of thing, maybe. But it's somewhere in between. You Mm -hmm. know, I hate to say it like that, but it's like, not black or white, but it's a shade
1: of gray. That's what Trotsky's saying here, is that it's conditional. Well, and the political reality is also that, presume that a revolution does begin, it's not day one, guillotines come out, day two, socialist utopia, you know what I mean? Like, it's going to take time to develop and respond to whatever things are happening in the international space as well, Mm -hmm. so you shouldn't expect... To reach the, quote, maximum program, immediately those sorts of things are going to take time to develop.
0: Exactly. And not to side with Trotsky so readily, but I think the idea of socialism in one country is kind of naive because, as Trotsky and Lenin say, is that socialist construction can't happen within the confines of existing in this relationship to all these other capitalist countries. There will inevitably be conflict, Mm -hmm. you know, and what Trotsky is saying is that if there will be conflict, then it should be revolutionary conflict. Yep. You know, we should we should make it into revolution permanently until the whole globe is one beautiful socialist utopia, dude.
1: It's the new world order. Oh, my God. (laughs) But I mean, that idea that imperialism and socialism can't exist side by side into perpetuity. It's such an elementary concept. It's easy to understand. You can't have imperialist power and socialist countries existing side by side. There will be conflict, and right. if that conflict is going to come, it's either going to be the decision of the imperialist bourgeois trying to overthrow the socialist spaces, or it's going to be revolutionary violence that the socialists are using to try to liberate people under those in those imperialist spaces. Yeah,
0: I, I even... Not-
1: That I have qualms with the word violence there, but I think that
0: even as we were talking about earlier, it could just be the kind of maybe like a socialist osmosis, you know, like (laughs) look at the look at the workers in that country like we must do something, you know, it creates a class consciousness just by existing, you know, just by having an opposition to look at maybe like thinking about the scope of the Cold War, like that same thing kind of happened where
1: The U.S. was the fear of the domino.
0: Yeah, the the domino effect. You know, like they would see this as like some potential, and it goes fundamentally against us. Mm -hmm. Now let's go fucking drop napalm on. uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was gonna say Vietnam, but (laughs) but yes. socialist revolution within national limits is unthinkable one of the basic reasons for crisis in the bourgeois society is the fact that the productive forces created by it can no longer be reconciled with the framework of the national state Mm -hmm. from this follows on one hand imperialist wars so he's talking about the, the contradictions of capitalism which they're seeing in the very moment might i add i mean they must have felt like vindicated i guess you know they're seeing the result of the contradictions of capitalism like yeah. in their minds they're saying these imperialist wars which i think rightfully so are because like the markets have to expand outside their own borders at this point you know so to continue the quote on the other the utopia of a bourgeois united states of europe the socialist revolution begins on the national arena it unfolds in the international arena and is completed on the world arena that's the point that really got to me there is that mm-hmm. if the goal is the construction of socialism then it will have to be on a global scale, you know. And in my current revolutionary life, I'd like for there to be some kind of action that happens. I would prefer there to be a communist state that appears exists, is created via revolution. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to mince words here. I really just don't know what I'm trying to say. But I don't ever expect it to get to the like a global scale. Like, that's the thing. You know what I'm saying like I can I can envision a revolution happening mm-hmm. it is impossible for me to see it spreading worldwide a and
1: global vision. I, yeah
0: and I I know that part of that is like capitalist realism yeah. you know but it's tricky I mean it, it's kind of like it it's a little gut churning you know it's like I already am thinking of the incredible insurmountable workload that is on any communist plate and that's just for one country. Yeah. You know, that's just for a local program. It's like, you're telling me that we have to fit this bill to the rest of the world before there's peace? Like, that's <laughs> that's tough.
1: Yeah. I recognize that kind I would what I would call fatalism, and I feel that wholeheartedly. And I think that's at the center of, of a lot of my kind of depressive struggles. I will say, he, Trotsky mentioned a phrase that stood out to me. He refers to revolutionary pessimism mm-hmm. on page 99. If it is assumed that the social antagonisms between the proletariat and the peasant masses will prevent the proletariat from placing itself at the head of the ladder, and that the proletariat by itself is not strong enough to gain victory, then one must necessarily draw the conclusion that there is no victory at all in store for our revolution. And he continues to talk about different circumstances or whatever. But he ends that paragraph, he says, Mm -hmm. In essence, the entire analysis of the Mensheviks, above all their evaluation of the proletariat and its possible relations with the peasantry, leads them inexorably to the path of revolutionary pessimism. And he's obviously, I won't say obviously, he's, in my estimation, defining the difference between the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks Mm. and their view of the role of the peasantry class in the revolution, and arguing that the Mensheviks are being pessimistic in their idea that. There cannot be some sort of united front between the proletariat and the peasants. But I don't know, that phrase, revolutionary pessimism, really stood out to me, and it got me wondering, like, how much of that am I participating in, in this kind of fatalism that I live in all the time? Like you were saying, I I can't even imagine a Marxist revolution happening in the United States, for example, let alone some sort of global Mm. revolution where even if it starts in one country and the domino theory comes true and it does kind of start to spread, it's very difficult for me to imagine any sort of space where the remaining imperialist powers would not just fucking drop atomic bombs on countries. Like, I don't know. I I guess I fall into that quite readily as well. But at the same time, I know there is some revolutionary stuff happening in the Philippines, for example. Right. There's literally protracted people's war happening in the Philippines. And how little of that do I know about? Does... Even someone less invested in it than I am know about it, yeah. and this is maybe going in a different direction. But I, the idea of the permanent revolution, I think, in a globalized world, feels more possible than it would have for Trotsky. Yes. And we talked to, even in like the first episode, talked a little bit about that about how there might be more kind of revolutionary potential. In a globalized space, because we are more connected than we ever, yeah. have ever been. But even in this space, there are these divisions of information and access to information where the people that want it to be a fringe, hidden reality can easily make that the case. Yep. And so, like, the likelihood of it becoming a thing that spurns one revolution after the other, I think, is grim. Yeah, My conclusion from this section is that it's really fucking hard to conceptualize a revolution happening anywhere. Mm. One, like you said, because of the insurmountable task of organizing that it would take for that to even occur. Two, because of the very strong repressive reactionary force that would come out against it. And... Even beyond that, presume that some sort of miraculous thing happens where people are able to organize, are able to kind of create some gains with some sort of project and move forward, the likelihood that that would spurn these additional movements elsewhere, I think, is even lower. So it's hard to imagine it. I like the idea of the permanent revolution. I want it to be true. I don't think It is true that it is true.
0: There is like a tinge in my mind that it's all theory, no practice. That's
1: that's a good way to put it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I'm not, you know, giving Stalin the benefit, but he was practicing. Like, socialism in one country is the theory that came out of the practice of running the country. Yeah. Not that I think that it's correct, even, or possible, but it's just interesting to me that that happened. At the moment of the February Revolution, the whole so-called old guard of the Bolsheviks held the position of the bald counterposing of the democratic dictatorship to the socialist dictatorship. Out of Lenin's algebraic formula, his closest disciples made a purely metaphysical construction and directed it against the real development of the revolution. Okay, even further down, he says, Would it not be more correct to acknowledge that the old algebraic Bolshevik formula contains certain dangers within it? Political development filled it, as always happens with an ambiguous revolutionary formula, with a content hostile to the proletarian revolution. So, two parts there. One, even if these are like radical revolutionary people, like, it's it's crazy because I hate thinking about them as like good or bad, you know, but it's like, they're good revolutionaries up until something, and then suddenly they're like reactionaries or fascists or Turkish nationalist allies or something. But... The second part of that, I guess, is going back to when we were talking about slogans, where he's saying, if you have an ambiguous program, it will be filled with something that's ultimately hostile to the revolution. Mm -hmm. You know, think about every real radical in the 60s that is now a guy, you know, some (laughs) some dude on the street, like,
1: I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sorry to put it like that but Some fucking boomer yuppie now No
0: dude, I I forever ago I read the book Operation Green Kill, which is about The Greensboro Massacre, we've talked about this Not on the podcast, but we've talked about it before Where there was a shootout Between Nazis, neo-Nazis Neo-Nazi groups And communist groups, like workers Parties, people, or whatever And what came about was the fact that The FBI had infiltrated both groups And they knew what was going to happen and they did nothing to stop it Of course Okay And so I read all of that and I'm reading about like real ass, hard ass communists, like party line marching, sign hoisting communists bringing guns to marches because they were like doing workers, defense, militias and shit. Okay, and I'm looking them up and it's like Wallace Green now lives in in new jersey and yeah. he uh, owns a car dealership it's like what happened what yeah. happened you were ready to do revolution and mm-hmm. like did you just give it up did you just were you beaten down like
1: it's it's that evolution really bugs me yeah how do you succumb to the pressures yeah. of imperialism of capitalism
0: like i'm sure angela davis is still a good force net positive but if i listen to one of her modern day speeches i fall asleep There's a fear. There's a fear in there that I'm going to be a 60-year-old dude in a house and not revolutionary. You know? I'm yep. Like, I'm still going to hold these beliefs in my heart, but I'll just be a shell of a man. Yeah. Like, that
1: is a fear. You know? Ugh. One of the best bands of all time. Propaganda. <laughs> Their song Adventures in Zucosis." Okay. One made me break down crying because it speaks to something about this. Like, the premise of the song, for those uninitiated. Me. It uses a metaphor of an animal in a zoo Hmm. that's undergoing a real thing called zookosis, which is this idea where you've become so acclimated to a life in captivity that that becomes your norm and all these other terrible things happen. Okay. So, but it's a metaphor really for the guy, Chris Hanna, also known as Jesus H. Chris, and his children. He had children, which I think, I mean, this is a hot take. Yeah. (laughs) Having kids is not a revolutionary idea. It's counter-revolutionary to have children. But I digress. Uh, <laughs> he's talking about his kids and how the metaphor is that like he doesn't have sharp teeth any longer. His claws have been worn down or filed down. He's no longer in a position where he can do the things that he hoped to do as a young, quote, wild animal that was living a free life yeah. and sought, sought that freedom for all people. But he hopes to make the way for his children. So he'll, he says, I'll sink my squandered teeth. You take your you take your little brother's hand and run and i it speaks to something in me a fear that exists in me that i'm going to be a 55 60 65 70 year old person who had that revolutionary zeal and has never done anything to yeah. enact it to like actually see it happen so the the dream of the revolution you know will die with my withered body <laughs> um no shots to people who want to have kids yeah. by the way. The kid thing, the best way to know that you have a revolutionary is to breed a revolutionary. <laughs> I guess there's that. Well, yeah. I
0: mean even to even to speak about kids being counter-revolutionary, it's funny because if you've got kids are you about to go are you about to are you are you about to it go It changes and, the equation. Yeah,
1: it does. This is the tension that exists within every revolutionary in the modern world is it like do you want to live a life as well as you can live it, given the context and circumstance that you were non-consensually forced into. Yeah. You know, no one consents to be alive. You were born. That's not a choice that you made. So, like, you either can try to not be miserable and make the best of a shit hand that you've been dealt, or you can readily accept a shittier hand in hopes that you can make it better for yourself and or other people. Yeah. Like, I don't fault people for yeah. saying, like, I'm going to fucking buy a house in the middle of nowhere and just try to live out my days. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. It's fucking hard to say, like, I'm going to let go of everything that currently makes my life livable and or comfortable in hopes that I can overthrow this fucking gigantic machine. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I'll just play Skyrim instead.
0: Yeah. like I'll just, you're, you're, It gets me through the day. There's an Anthony Bourdain quote where he's like, I have to fight every part of my body to not just sit on my couch and smoke weed. You know, like that finding the purpose of life is finding a reason to not want to just sit out and stone out. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, I fucking feel that, man. You know? Mm-hmm. To say one more thing about the intelligentsia, the yeah, academia, because exactly. this is kind of where I was going, is that those revolutionaries are allowed. To, yeah, the ones we see
1: are the ones that we're allowed yeah. to see. Yeah.
0: That's not so firm. I mean, there are very revolutionary academics. I mean, I think of like Richard Wolf is one. Do you know him at all?
1: Uh, yeah, I think we talked about him once before.
0: Yeah, I think we have. Maybe you pointed me to a book or he's he, on the list. He, he's a real-ass Marxist. Like, I know that for a fact, you know, but there's there's other ones too. I mean, like. A lot of historians are communists at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. right? But I think that if you are too revolutionary, like if you're too radical, you'll just be censored. You know, Angela Davis is prominent because she is soothing. She's not revolutionary. She's a force that essentially at the end of the day prevents that because she's saying like you can do this and that and have prison abolition ideals
1: and like that's enough. Well, this is exactly what you were saying about how even the most revolutionary groups can find their way falling into reformism. You said, like, Angela Davis probably is a net positive, right? Like, probably a net good. She is. Yeah. She's saying things that not everybody is saying, and so it's probably good that those things are being said. And I think that that's probably true, but also, like, is it a revolutionary idea, or are you a revolutionary if you are tempering your ideas to make them more palatable? For a wider audience like there's something positive to be said but at the same time i think that there can be value in something like that but at the same time i kind of think that that's fucked either you have the idea or you don't like fucking use the word i just think it's so stupid and inherently dishonest to like temper your attitude or language in any sort of way and and by doing so you're placating to the bourgeois class you're not you're not really a revolutionary
0: Yeah, I think that Trotsky talks to us about about this a little bit. We were reading a book by Trotsky. Yes, back to it. Where he does talk about tailism in here, where he's saying that to go back and sit with the people is not the point. We're not working backwards. We're not trying to get the tail end of this revolution. Like, you need to lead and set the precedent, and then the people will come up to where you are, Mm -hmm. you know? And that's something that is later on espoused by Mao frequently like you are with the people but you're still leading the people it's like serve the people Mm. you know you're still working for the people but they're not changing the message i i agree with you because at the end of the day it's like if these are marxist things and they're the right things then just say that you know i understand the inherent fear that americans in a modern audience has to communism and marxism in those words Mm -hmm. but i think that It's a matter of good faith operation, you know? If these people that you're talking to are sincerely going to be allies or revolutionaries or radicals or whatever, then they should reckon with the fact that these ideals come from a place that they had been told all their life is a scary, terrifying, bad place. You know, it's just like when we were talking about the dictatorship of the proletariat, Jesus, how people get caught up on the word dictatorship. And it's like at the end of the day, they just mean absolute political rule. They don't mean like a dictator or like, oh whoa, Stalin, dude. Uh no. Sounds like it's straight out of Stalin's mouth. Yeah. What is this, North Korea? (laughs) God. Reckon with it, you know? And when you read those things, if you are, in fact, someone that's worth dealing with, then they'll come to that point. You know, even if it's like agree to disagree, like y'all should still be able to talk about those things to the point where they can reckon with the fact that these ideals are real, true, and valid, even if they're coming from a place that is scary to them. Okay, I think um do we
1: want to Let's do- talk about the peasantry. Yeah,
0: yes. I think we need to talk yes. about the peasantry. Yes. I think yeah, let's let's pivot back to the permanent revolution here because the peasantry is something really interesting and you you've got this shit loaded, man. I
1: put a lot of stuff here just because I I do kind of think he says the same thing over and over again, yeah. but in multiple interesting ways. Yes. I think the the general question though is one that you raised already, which is like what is the peasantry in a modern context. Right. Especially if we're talking about a non-agrarian country, I think it's hard to understand what application this conversation about the division between the proletariat and the peasantry means in a modern context, if anything, and how should that impact our our scientific analysis of the situation at hand. So first perhaps we should just clarify this question of the role of the peasantry. Yeah that Trotsky is bringing up in the text. I have a quote that maybe does that. Do you have one?
0: No, I did find the (laughs) quote that I was originally looking for forever ago. Okay. This kind of has to do with the development of the peasantry in relation to the revolution as a whole. It's on page 126. He says, So long as the majority of the working masses have confidence in the social democrats, or let us say the Kuomintang, or the trade union leaders, we cannot pose before them the task of immediate overthrow of bourgeois power. The masses must be prepared for that. That preparation can prove to be a very long, quote, stage, but only a tailist can believe that, quote, together with the masses, we must sit first in the right, then with the left, he's talking about China here, or maintaining a block with the strike breaker Purcell until the masses become disillusioned with their leaders. So this was the idea I was trying to get at earlier, because he's saying that even if the proletariat has sympathies with these parties, it's not... I was going to say beneficial, but it, like it's not the right move to create a democratic dictatorship with them, right? The, this block of people is not what is ultimately going to be revolutionary because, as he said many times now, the peasantry can't have an independent and actionable party, right? He's saying that the proletariat need to be leading the peasant, almost like a tool, you know? I said it before, but... Trotsky says, like, if we're talking about an arrangement of these two classes together, the peasantry and the proletariat, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like a side-by-side equal partnership. He's saying which is, will be the horse and which will be the rider. And as we mentioned earlier, you know, there can only be a dictatorship for the proletariat or a dictatorship for the, the bourgeoisie, right? He's saying that if the proletariat aren't leading the peasantry in this case, then they will ultimately acquiesce to the bourgeois, Yeah, you know, and I think that what I really appreciated here is where he's saying that the proletariat must be prepared for that. Like, they have to be, not that they must be prepared, but they they need to be prepared. Ooh, I keep, it's, I'm saying be they need- prepared. <laughs> no, they need, some. <laughs> someone needs to prepare them is yeah, what I'm saying. Not that they need to be ready, but like, they must be taught, not taught. They must be- Do you know what what I'm trying to say? It's just that you don't have the verbiage for it.
1: Yeah, no. The quotes that I have here on page 74, I think, speak to that. Their inability to lead themselves. I have two quotes here. One is very long near the top of the page. He writes, Were the peasantry capable of creating their own independent party in the epoch of the democratic revolution, then the democratic dictatorship could be realized in its truest and most direct sense. And the question of the participation of the proletarian minority in the revolutionary government would have an important, it is true, but subordinate, significance. The case is entirely otherwise if we proceed from the fact that the peasantry, because of its intermediate position and the heterogeneity of its social composition, can have neither an independent policy nor an independent party, but is compelled in the revolutionary epoch to choose between the policy of the bourgeois and the policy of the proletariat. And then lastly, (laughs) this is a long quote. Yes. The fact that the agrarian revolution created the conditions for the dictatorship of the proletariat grew out of the inability of the peasantry to solve its own historical problem with its own forces and under its own leadership.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot to unpack. Yeah. And I think that the agrarian question is really the pivotal thing here. What you, You know, he's saying that the peasants haven't been able to solve this problem. At the end of the day, they're still serfs. So... It's still hard to envision, though, a comparison. A modern comparison, yeah. Yeah. You know, especially because I think that the two questions that Trotsky poses is like an impetus to revolution here the agrarian question and the national question are largely gone. There is a sense of like land reform, maybe in like the housing situation of the day. Mm. That's still a possibility, I would say, that maybe that might be like the big modern. Parallel. The biggest modern parallel to the agrarian question or the question of land reform is probably the question of housing and homelessness in today's society. But the national question, I think, has mostly fallen off. You know, people are content to say that they live within a society or a state with the exception of maybe.
1: (laughs) We live in a society. We live in a society. We need
0: like a, a buzzer, dude. Sorry. No, it's okay. With the exception of, like, fucking Ireland. I don't think that there's a a people that consider themselves wrought for self-determination. Or at least see themselves as that. You know, I've heard online arguments for... uh, The problem with, like, new Africa is that it feels racist, okay? But a black state, an African-American state, you know, a self-determined, autonomous body for African-Americans in the U.S. Because people say that, like, that's the oppressed population. but Like I said, largely, I think that, you know, uh, maybe Quebecois independence, but there's not a question of first self-determination of nations anymore. I think that more or less the, I was going to Palestine, I guess, you know, shit. Yeah. Yeah. But I would love to at some point to talk about, I mean, to to delve a little bit more into like Pan-Africanism,
1: Pan-Arabism, those kinds of things, because I don't know anything about. Yeah, I know probably dangerously little, yeah. just enough to be an idiot. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Right. I know enough to know how much I don't know. But again, I mean, that's that's the thing, though, is that outside of these far-reaching examples, you know, there's really not those things there.
1: Yeah. I do think there's one interesting thing that, again, not knowing the history of the October Revolution or, you know, the makeup of Russian politics after the revolution before Lenin's death, He says on page 82, Trotsky writes, I accused Lenin of overestimating the independent role of the peasantry. Lenin accused me of underestimating the revolutionary role of the peasantry. And I thought that that was an interesting kind of part of the whole project is to be critical and, like he said before, see a mistake for a mistake and then move on as quickly as possible. So there is a part of this reading things like this that feels a little bit like mincing words like you said or like getting really caught up in minor details that are kind of pointless in the overall scheme of things but i do think that there's something interesting there in this sort of ideological divide where two people were kind of close to the same idea but maybe had a different interpretation of it in a way that i think is i don't know useful in the the overall scheme of learning about revolution yeah just thinking
0: about the formation of the party line again. How do you reconcile, like, two disparate ideals into one practical mm-hmm. task? It's tricky. I mean, is it all just, like, debates and polemics? Mm. Later on, he says the peasantry includes the petty bourgeois, or the petty bourgeois includes the peasantry, I guess. So if we were going to take that that lens, it might be easier to understand how this might work in the modern world. But, I mean, just to, just to give it, like, a thought experiment, what does a vanguard class even look like in the modern day, mm. you know? I can see a peasantry as in like a, I almost said unwashed mass, but you know, like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like they're, they're uneducated masses and by not stupid, but I mean like they're not conscious. They're not conscious of the issues. I can visualize that. Right. But then where does the Vanguard party come in? i'm almost thinking of it as like a two parts but they're at disparate levels you know like the peasantry here in this situation the vanguard was like one step up like they were urban industrial workers rather than like agricultural or agrarian serfs so if we're talking about the same thing in this day and age if now we're thinking of the peasantry as the large lower class working class body of people then now who is the the vanguard to lead them is it still like one step up are we talking about like an educated body like intelligentsia or are we talking about actually even even i think that is too formulaic of an approach i think i'm getting too caught up in the in the formula of the peasantry led by the proletariat because i think that if i can loosen the definition of the peasantry enough to include just like the regular working class people that don't
1: have class consciousness then i think it's quite easy to see I don't know, my feeling or my thought this whole time you're making this distinction is like does the distinction even matter in the modern world? We're talking about what would the peasantry be today and I, my thinking listening to you explain that was like does doesn't matter. Is there a value is there value in creating a distinction between the proletarians and the and the peasants?
0: I mean, maybe to take an argument from Trotsky here, yes, because if we're thinking of the peasantry in the same way, then they can't be the actionable party in the revolution they can't have the independent political power
1: because that would ultimately lead to caving to the bourgeois you know but then what could it be other than education as the distinction you know what i mean yeah i don't know that that's kind of what my discomfort in this is that i don't really
0: understand i mean again maybe it's too formulaic i think you're right that it doesn't really matter
1: yeah i mean i mean my understanding of the distinction with the peasants in russia is that they are not they're not able to act as an independent force in large part because they can't organize because of the literal lay of the land and so like there is no strength in the organized peasantry because there is no organized peasantry they're spread apart it's agrarian you know what i mean and where the urban industrial class have centers around which they can organize and so they they have like a you know more access to organizational power I don't think that that exists in the same way now, at least in the United States. The only, you're right, I, I, I do agree with you. I think the only context in which I
0: could see that same kind of spread out issue is just the continued isolation and alienation of the working class. Yeah. But even that's not a physical barrier. It's something that can be, that it's can be, logical. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a hurdle that can be crossed with enough exposure, I would say, except, I don't know, I was just thinking like, this is a weird way to put this, but just imagine if you had like a whole body of the people and you gave and you showed them all you exposed them all to communist ideas some would come over to one side but some would also go over to the other side mm-hmm. you know i think also that kind of earlier i said cultural hegemony but that's the same kind of thing where that class consciousness is rebutted against by the trappings of modern society you know by the structures that are in place in modern society i think that there is still an isolation and an alienation in the working class that is is manufactured it's it's no longer mm-hmm. a physical barrier but like you said an ideological barrier
1: yeah Alienation, false consciousness, the spectacle, all of those things work toward creating divisions among the proletariat or among the working class in a way that would, yeah, like you said, if a line were drawn in the sand, not everyone would go to the same side for that reason. Let's talk about the pacifism thing. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting chapter.
0: Yeah. I think we kind of touched on it earlier. We did a little bit. But there is a chapter in here, Marxism and pacifism. And it caught me off guard in the beginning because I didn't know what the hell he was going to say. But I do actually, I think, agree with what Trotsky is saying there. He's saying that the the quote on 154, I think both of us definitely picked the same quote here (laughs) because he says, the struggle against war is decided not by pressure upon the government, but only by a revolutionary struggle for power. There is some historical context to go here where he's saying that the working classes of germany and uh, i don't know i guess the participants in world war one they're saying that they'll give support to the russian revolution by exerting pressure on their government and he's saying like that that's bullshit you know it's basically nothing if we really want an end to war it won't be the pressure from the people below but actual revolutionary action
1: sounds a lot like palestine to me yeah like we can recognize the atrocities that we see happening in gaza And argue about it, and complain about it, and protest about it here in the United States, while we continue to funnel money over there to Zionists murdering children and actual genocide. So, yeah, I mean, like, there's a significant difference between complaining to your government in hopes that they'll do anything about it in actual revolutionary action.
0: Yeah, I think that there is some space here to talk about. First off, it's no war, but class war, baby. That's what it's all about, right? But secondly, I think that what I was thinking about is, in that statement, no war but class war, is like there is a difference in a use of violence. Again, not to do Soviet apologia, but the Soviet Union expanded via what some people would view as conquest, what others might view as liberation, but all of the countries in the Caucasus were liberated, quote unquote, by armies ostensibly i mean i don't i don't have the reading behind that but the soviet union expanded its borders after its creation essentially you know up to the point where they invaded poland and the polish army pushed them off i mean i think that was kind of the end point of soviet expansion post 1917 at least
1: the struggle against war is not decided by pressure upon the government but only by the revolutionary struggle for power i have the next line highlighted as well The pacifist effects of the proletarian class struggle, like its reformist effects, are only byproducts of the revolutionary struggle for power. They have only a relative strength and can easily turn into their opposite. That is, they can drive the bourgeoisie to take the road to war. I read that to mean something about reformist arguments to those on high, to a government above, saying like, don't go to war, we don't want to do this thing, blah, 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 blah can actually embolden the the government and the, and the power to take more aggressive action. Mm-hmm. There's no war but class war, like you said. Yeah. I'm just reading further ahead that, you know, the fear
0: of revolution alone decides nothing. The mm-hmm. revolution decides. You know, it's... I, I mean, I, the only part I had highlighted was the, the italicized, the, yeah. the struggle against war, because I do understand what he's saying there. You know, ultimately, if we want this conflict to stop, it will require... The absence of the the conflictees, you know, like, yeah, (laughs) the expropriation of
1: the capitalist class. (laughs) He closes the paragraph above the one with the italicized quote by writing, new generations have grown up that have not tasted the horrors of the imperialist slaughter. The result is that the bourgeoisie is now freer to dispose of its war machine than it was five or eight years ago. And I don't know, something about that really spoke Mm-hmm. To me, I think not to be an old man, you know, yelling at clouds or whatever, but I do think that there is something where you have a myopia some, that can come from age that can come from deliberate uh, miseducation or, yeah. or whatever that we can like close our eyes and blind ourselves to the very clear imperialist slaughter, the horrors of those things that are occurring. And by doing so, we enable that to continue to persist and even yeah. amplify itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking just about, I don't know, people understanding the horrors of war. You know, we're like George W. Bush being rehabilitated as the guy you can have a beer with and he does paintings and all that.
1: Yeah, not Uh, the fucking war criminal.
0: Right, and it's because people have just forgotten, right? They only see history
1: within the context they are taught. As a reformed pacifist, ideologically, I am opposed to the idea of violence. Here's a hot take. Violence isn't good. Whoa. (laughs) I know. We need a hot take button. (laughs) <laughs> left unread feedback at gmail.com <laughs> left on feedback at gmail.com no but okay so uh, and because of that ideologically I found myself moving toward pacifism because I don't like the idea of violence I think that it's dumb but I think it's pretty hard to deny that violence exists in the world and honestly the most pacifist attitude one can take is to see revolutionary violence as a necessity yeah. Because, like Trotsky says, the only way to avoid the horrors of imperialist machinations is to do away with imperialism. <laughs> and so, like, this idea that we have folks that don't recognize or see, I think the George W. Bush mm-hmm. example is a really good one, don't see the history of that kind of horror. God damn it. It's like the most pacifist thing you can do to recognize revolutionary violence as a necessary goal toward pacifism or nonviolence
0: i mean even to put it in a smaller scale it's like how people view october 7th in palestine i'm sorry to keep talking about palestine but like leftists look at it as not revolutionary but as like reaction to the situation whereas you know uh, liberals i guess and conservatives too view it as like an attack you know this is like outward aggression it's like war you know Mm -hmm. but in reality it's a reflection of the violence that has been done onto them by Israel, and
1: it's also a reaction. Yeah, and this is maybe a misappropriation of the chapter title, but From Marxism to Pacifism, I, my interpretation of that that I'm choosing to walk away from this chapter with is that only through socialist revolution, only through a yep. communist revolution, can we eventually find our way to a pacifist, yeah. nonviolent world.
0: Sure. I mean, it's, it's just
1: as Lenin said in
0: Satan Revolution when he's saying even those of individual excesses will wither away. It's like the the need for violence, the propensity for violence will just no longer be necessary, you know, because
1: we've done socialism. We've done it. Yep.
0: Bring the communism, you all. Yeah.
1: I would also be remiss if we turned the page without pointing out some shots that Trotsky takes at Stalin. At the end of this second paragraph on page 154, just as the owl takes flight at twilight, so also did the Stalinist theory of the neutralization of the bourgeoisie by the pressure of the proletariat arise only when the conditions which engendered this theory had begun to disappear. There's some sly
0: shots in this book, okay? Not that that's like sly or anything, but I was just remembering a quote earlier where he's like, well, if we're talking about how Stalin writes theory, we know what his level of development is. It's like, <laughs> Jesus, man. You know, like at first I thought Trotsky was really, you know, we keep saying shitposting, but like the the jabs that they take at each other. Sometimes you can miss them. Like sometimes yeah. you really can. I mean, they can be kind of subtle. Yeah. 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 You know what his level of development is.
1: Certainly passive aggressive. <laughs> what else can you do? You're in <laughs> exile. I don't remember why I thought this was such a big deal now, but it's in kind of the middle of the first full paragraph there. Mm -hmm. Trotsky writes, under the pressure of the masses of the people, the bourgeoisie will still take steps to the left in order then to fall all the more mercilessly upon the people. Periods of dual power are possible and probable, but what there will not be, what there cannot be, is a genuine democratic dictatorship that is not the dictatorship of the proletariat. I keep doing that thing where I've read one Guy Debeau book, and so I keep mentioning Guy Debo all of the time, but this concept of recuperation yes, that is espoused by the Situationist International, or whatever the fuck they were called, what Debo says is that the people in power will take the language of the revolution, they'll take the, the rhetoric and the look of the revolution, yep. the iconography, and it neuters or defangs the language of the revolution and slowly transforms it into something that is not only not revolutionary, but is actually counter-revolutionary. And I think that this idea of the masses of the bourgeois taking steps to the left in order only to fall more mercilessly upon the people is a really good verbalization of that.
0: Yeah, I actually, I totally agree. I think it even works both ways. I'm just thinking about when Joe Biden was elected or in all the squabble to be like, who's... Going to go up against Trump the first time, not 2016, but 2020, where they were like, just elect Joe Biden and then we can push him to the left. Mm-hmm. You know, I think even. Yeah, how'd that work out? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I was going to say something about his dementia, but I'm just going to leave it at that. I think that it's assimilation. I mean, it's. They're taking these ideals. I don't know. I, I just had the pang that we were doing the same thing. I was like, you know you it, and i yes when we when we're like what does it mean to be a revolutionary it's mm-hmm. like just fucking podcast you know it's like are we changing the definition of revolutionary to fit our own ideals well i still stand by that podcasting isn't revolutionary no it's not i agree no, it's not. I mean, we're not.
1: Re- I mean,
0: we're not. This is not a revolutionary action.
1: It's an no. excuse to read theory. <laughs> and I feel very uncomfortable with the idea of likening myself to a revolutionary. Yes. Even though Fred Hampton tells me that I should.
0: I mean, I agree. I don't consider myself a revolutionary. Not to get back into this. Um, yeah. <laughs> I completely missed that. Steps to the left to fall more mercilessly upon the people. Dual power is an interesting concept. Do you want to talk about dual power for a second? Because you had done some, some further reading.
1: Well, not really. I, I Googled it. Yes. Uh, because, so this is the thing. I think that there is a barrier to entry with all leftist rhetoric. And I think my reticence to dig deeply into Marxist theory previously was every time I kind of dipped a toe into it, I would start to hear different phrases or terminology that I didn't understand and I was told or made to believe that I needed to understand those things to understand what Marxism was. Yeah, And so it's like, if you don't understand the base and the superstructure, if you don't understand contradiction, if you don't understand dialectical materialism, can you even call yourself a Marxist, bro? And like, I think it can be very difficult to get into it. I think even people that are, that want to or seek to become more revolutionary in their action, or at least in their ideology, can feel like, Already, that's a barrier that I don't know how to surmount. And dual power is one of those things. Like, they, we talked about contradiction already a little bit. I think that one's relatively self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. But this concept of dual power, I didn't really understand. And yeah. I Googled it, I read the Wikipedia, and I still didn't understand it. So
0: Most of the context I hear it in is within China. And I'm still not exactly sure. Is it just the idea that, they, that you can cultivate power among the people and also among a state at the same time?
1: Yeah, so, well, my limited understanding of it had it as a an extension of Leninism, and I was, having just come from reading the state and revolution, thinking of it as the quote-unquote transitional state where the proletariat have power while there is also a state apparatus. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of, too. And that's the dual power while the state is withering away. Right. But how it could maintain itself, or if it should, I don't understand.
0: Yeah, I'm really not too sure feedback at gmail.com. Yeah. Let us know what dual power is. But to go back to what you were saying about the kind of jargon, right, I totally agree with you. And the problem is that if you keep peeling the onion, eventually you're left with nothing, you know, just scraps on the floor. It's like, I think that there is a point, and even when I was reading like Capital, that's something that David Harvey, who does a, a lecture on Capital, which I was watching part of on YouTube, and he also has written a companion to Capital even if some of these things don't make sense, just keep pushing forward because like you'll see the context eventually. That's exactly the vibe I get when we're doing these readings because even in stuff like this, if there's stuff I don't know, it's like, we'll just come back to it. I.
1: This is, this probably won't make the episode. He's talking all the time about these folks who are his ideological uh, opposites. Yeah. He's referring to them as the E P I O G O N E S. I was like reading this next to uh, Kristen and I, uh, who's Greek, and I was like, is this Greek? It looks like uh, Epigenes. Yeah. Epigenes. Is that how you would say that? It looks Greek to me. And she said, maybe. Um, It depends on if the G is It's a hard G or not Mm. You know, epigenes or epigony I was like like epigons Well, and then I was like I gotta Google it So I Googled it And the Google pronunciation is epigon Epigon And I was like, what the fuck is that? I had no idea That that makes no sense to me Yeah But I did Google the definition Mm. of the word Which is something of a Like a political uh, opposite Something like that But to go through the whole book And have no fucking clue how to pronounce that Made me feel like a real fucking idiot. <laughs> uh, it should make you feel intelligent,
0: bro, because you're you're reading. You know, it's like that's the that's the old thing. If you don't know how to pronounce a word, it just means you've read it a lot. <laughs> you know, sim- simple.
1: Yeah, um, I can comfort myself in the uh, Socrates I- ideology that uh, all I know is that I know nothing. There you so. go. There's a, a
0: legendarily old green text uh, where the guy, there's this dude walking down the street and these guys are like, you're a fat idiot or something. And he's like, I remain stoic. And they're like, <laughs> stoic. it's stoic, you fucking moron.
1: <laughs> Whatever you say, I remain stoic. Uh, the Sopranos, when uh, AJ starts reading Niche. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> Something,
0: not to talk about The Sopranos, but I love how frequently Tony will do references to just something completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And I only catch it because of the subtitles. Like, they'll they'll be like, I can't that even remember, sense. you know, yeah. yeah. I can't even remember a specific example, but, you know, he'll like drop a reference to Melfi and, and he says something completely wrong. Mm. It's just very funny to me. Did you just reveal that you are a subtitles person? I am exclusively a subtitles person. Are you not? No, fuck no, I'm not. You're a freak, Johnson.
1: I think that this is an indication of our waning ability to pay attention to things. It's the, our incessant need to use subtitles on everything. I
0: think it's an indication that they don't know how to mix fucking volume well, in modern movies,
1: too. bro. No
0: no brightness, no volume, okay? <laughs> They're disabling us at the point of techn- technology, okay? It's it's no longer in our mind, but in their technology!
1: Yeah, why is every fucking TV show blue now? Like, the color grading and... It's just insane,
0: color theory was a mistake, okay no, I'
1: um anyway, I yeah. didn't really have anything. no, no. I just just I didn't know how to say that word.
0: I am a subtitles person, man, because I need to read it, okay? It's Carissa reads incredibly fast, Lightning fast. Mm-hmm. she will read the subtitle before anything has happened in the scene, which I do all the time too. um, but that's the only downfall of subtitles is that you you the joke is spoiled one second before yeah,
1: you lose you. I just I, I'm either reading the subtitles or I'm watching the show. Mm. I can't really do both. I feel very much like a, it's a it's a different experience.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah. It I again it's one of those things that I it feels more and more like a generational divide. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Because I mean it just wasn't available when I was a kid, you know, so I didn't get used to it or I didn't get acclimated to it. I would agree that sound design is terrible yeah. in most most TV shows and films where it's like the dialogue. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's like really fucking annoying yes but i just listened to everything really loud then <laughs> That's fair enough. i remember i distinctly
0: remember the first time um I, my mom i was like watching a show and my mom was like you need to turn the sound off and i was like well then how am i gonna watch it And she's like "Just turn subtitles on mm. you know and it was like a, on tv it was danny phantom um <laughs> But I remember I just read the subtitles and I was like this is great, and I've never turned back. I've never looked back All right, so let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up with the big picture questions we ask of every text
1: Yeah, so that was the permanent revolution by Leon Trotsky. The question is was it worth reading? um
0: No, no, no! No, it's not. Unless you are specifically interested in Trotsky as a person, maybe as a historical figure, I think that
1: you don't need to read this whole book. Yeah, I will say I came into this as something of a neophyte with regard to Trotsky. I knew next to nothing about him, and so I was really curious. I feared that we were working down a path where we were, one, going to focus only on Marxism, and two, focus only on a Marxist-Leninist view of Marxism. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to see some other perspectives. I also was curious about, again, the little that I knew about Trotsky, I understood him to be the apparent heir or the heir apparent mm-hmm. to Lenin. And I know that he did not take power after Lenin. And so I thought that was kind of curious. And I, again, I thought it would be interesting to read a little bit of his stuff and get a little bit of theory. What we get in this book is 90% arguing with an opponent That we are never going to read, for the record. Yeah, that I uh, also know little to nothing about. I will say I did very much like the final chapter, which is five pages long. So I think reading chapter 10 is useful because he very clearly summarizes and encapsulates the idea of the permanent revolution, the requirement of the role of the peasantry. He talks quite a lot about the difference between the democratic dictatorship and the dictatorship of the proletariat, and he does it all very succinctly in those five pages. Yes. So read chapter 10, skip the rest. Yeah,
0: I would absolutely agree with you. I mean, here's an alternate perspective, actually. You might want to read this if you're engaging in, like, if you're following a linear thought process through, like, Marxism, Leninism, and you're reading the theory chronologically, it might be worth reading this if you want to maybe like criticism of what the policy of Stalin was because that is something that, that Trotsky does uh explicitly I mean he is he is talking about the current policies and actions of the Soviet Union in the 20s and I guess no not just just the 20s um and I think that if you are doing like a comparative analysis between the two people it might be worth to read in that sense but one thing I was thinking about is that we picked this book off of it was random you know yeah what I see most frequently when I look for books by Trotsky is actually the revolution betrayed. You know, I think we had picked the permanent revolution as more of a theoretical piece than we expected. I mean, we were thinking of, like, learning about a theory that was not necessarily alternate to communism, but alternate to the mainline idea. In fact, I even had texted you, if this is the guy that's supposed to be the figurehead of the left opposition, then brother, I don't know what we're doing, (laughs) you know? Uh, And I don't necessarily feel the same way anymore, but I think that we went into this piece with a certain set of expectations and we came out of it with a different
1: set of reflections. I would agree with that. Yeah.
0: And boy, what a roller coaster it was. Yeah. So, you know, what is to be gained from reading this text? I think that good old Alan Woods in the introduction makes a great point where he says that the international perspective of the permanent revolution is probably the most sustaining part of it. As we've discussed... There's not a real parallel to what he's talking about with the peasantry in here. But as we also said, it's not necessarily that important. I think to have a more internationalist perspective is something that today might seem obvious, but in Trotsky's time did not. Yeah, I would agree with that. I will also say that. It's still fucking funny. It's it's even if it was like so slow, it's still hilarious to see them shit on each other, especially especially having an image of Stalin in my mind and then having Trotsky be like reading Stalin is like chewing rough bristles in my throat. You know, it's like, oh,
1: my God. (laughs) Yeah, I guess you summed it up in your response to the last question, really. But what I think is to be gained here is a different perspective than what I've been fed on the Stalinistic line up until this point. So again, neither the education that I've gotten around Stalin or Trotsky's perspective on Stalin are particularly favorable towards Stalin, but it was interesting to kind of put together one piece of the larger historical puzzle that I I can't even see the the whole image of in this stage. So it's still kind of interesting, and though I thought it was a bit of a slog to try to get through the first half of the book, I do feel happy that I read it, I guess.
0: Yeah, I would agree, you know, and is this book worth reading in your book club? Maybe not, right? If you are doing like a historical study, maybe. Yeah. And I'll stand on that.
1: I think as a piece of theory, I don't know that it's particularly worthwhile, again, other than the last five pages of the 160 so pages that it is. But as a historical account or a, a one part of a larger historical account, I do think, there's think there are things of interest in there. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. Any additional final thoughts?
0: No. Um, (laughs) He took that ice pick like a boss. (laughs) Um, Yes. No, no, no thoughts. Trotsky,
1: he's there. He's a real person. You can't ignore him. Yeah. I mean, my only final thought is that I don't at this stage, understand why he is as maligned as he is in certain circles of Marxism. I I get that there is clearly an ideological divide among prominent figures in the history of Marxism, and Trotsky is one of them. So if you happen to side with someone else, I can see why that would lead one uh, away from Trotsky. But I don't think that there's anything in this text that was inherently like, off-putting or <laughs> made me question his legitimacy as a, as a Marxist.
0: Yeah, there, I, I was just about to say, there is nothing in here that goes against a Marxist line, you know, maybe against a Stalinist line, yeah. right? But I think that, you know, don't have any shame in reading this book. Don't, he, don't have any shame in reading Trotsky. I don't think that he was like a CIA plant or some shit, you know, a fascist collaborator or whatever. Like, I don't think of him as a reactionary or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I think of him as someone that Stalin exiled and was genuinely trying to do socialism. Yep, you know, and he did up until he was killed. So, damn, that sounded so harsh. So, in closing, right? That's our final thoughts. What are we reading next, Aaron? The Paris Commune: A Revolution in Democracy by Donny Gluckstein. One thing, one thought that I had is that this is definitely going to be a different kind of episode simply because it's not theory, it's mm-hmm. instead history. But I think that it will be a different kind of discussion because we're not talking about theoretical pieces. We're really talking about history. Okay. Anyway, The Paris Commune, it's a, it's a more recent book. It's from 2006, I believe. So he's definitely an anti-capitalist, which I'm excited for. I didn't want to read a, a liberal interpretation of The Paris Commune. That's mm-hmm. not the point. And I'm excited. I'm really pumped.
1: Yeah. It'll be an interesting change of pace. And I think that there's a logical progression in what we're doing as we're reading these texts is realizing gaps in our own knowledge and letting the texts that we're reading kind of lead us on the path of what we read next. And I think we came out of reading Engels and Lenin with a lot of questions about the Paris Commune. So it made sense for us to now try to contextualize that a little bit. Yeah. So I think it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really looking forward to it. And that's that. Yeah. So
0: (laughs) what do we get right? What do we get wrong? What else should we read? What else should we know? What does dual power really mean? What the fuck is it all about, man? give us a call don't call us you can't call us <laughs> but you can email us at, at com. hold
1: on it's com. that's right i don't know i feel like a shill i was going to say like if you are one of the people that are listening to the podcast and you're enjoying it like share share it around it would be really beneficial to us to get more people to listen and write in with ideas and uh, contributions so yeah we're two dudes it's as simple as that. We're two dudes who both have a tenuous and uncomfortable relationship with social media yes. and are uncomfortable with the notion of monetizing something that's inherently anti-capitalist. And yes. so we need as much help as we can get, getting more people to listen and, you know, hopefully spread the gospel, so to speak. <laughs>
0: Sorry, that one really threw me. <laughs> yeah. Tell your friends. I don't know. Get some friends together and tell them to read this shit and then they can listen to the episode. Because I feel like that's the best way to to embrace this podcast is if you're reading and have nobody to talk to, you can listen okay. to us talk about it. That sounds a little goofy, but you know what I mean.
1: No, I think that that's entirely the whole reason we're doing it. I think we want to do some reading and I think not knowing exactly where to begin or not having people with whom to do the reading. This podcast can hopefully be a companion for you where you can read along with us And, you know. Learn and grow and become revolutionaries. No. Learn and grow. (laughs) Learn and grow and hopefully eventually participate in some sort of revolutionary action. Allegedly. Yeah.
0: There's, like, no good sign-off that's not unbelievably corny. Like,
1: power to the people. Yeah, it would be nice to have something to sign off like that. Yeah. Read that theory. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know.
0: I don't fucking know. (laughs) Bye. Take it easy.